All right, well, we are now in our second week in our Scenes and Acts series where we're looking at some of the most dramatic moments in the book of Acts, which is the story of the start of the church. Last week, if you were here, hopefully you, re- you remember that we looked at an especially dramatic moment and kind of a frightening moment, uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And we recognize that story as a warning to us not to be hypocrites, right? Not to present ourselves as more moral and virtuous than we actually are. Christ's church is supposed to be a place of honesty and authenticity. Now, the story that we're going to be looking at today is another warning story, and it's a warning that comes to us through the example of a man named Simon the Sorcerer, or some translations say Simon the Magician. Now, We hear the word sorcerer today, and it conjures up certain images. Maybe something like this, or like this. Um, Now, I can't say whether Simon had a pointy blue hat or a long beard, Um, but what we can be sure of is that if he was referred to as a sorcerer, That means that he was someone who tried to manipulate the world by calling on spirits. Uh, Sorcerers are people who believe that there are spirits who can be communicated with, usually through uh, spells or incantations. And those spirits, when called on in the appropriate way, will then uh, do things like, say, curse another person or empower uh, the, the sorcerer to do something supernatural, like levitate or something like that. Now, whether Simon actually literally had supernatural power or not, I'm not sure. Uh, Some people who call themselves sorcerers are probably just skilled illusionists. Uh, But others, I think, may be genuinely tapping into power from spirits. And if so, those are demonic spirits. Uh, Which is why, throughout Scripture, God strictly forbids sorcery. Because he doesn't want us to go to evil spirits for power. That's, uh, that's a recipe for disaster. That's like going to the mafia for power. You, know, you might get some benefits temporarily, but you're also uh, enmeshing yourself in something that's ultimately going to bring more harm than good. Um, so any power we get from an evil spirit is ultimately going to be destructive. And so we should never, to, we should never appeal to any other spirit for power other than the Holy Spirit. But whether Simon was an illusionist or a genuine sorcerer, people in his city were really convinced that he was a person of great power. So he was a person who had a lot of influence. But then, one day, the apostles arrived, uh, preaching the gospel, doing miracles, and it was clear to Simon that he was encountering a power through them that was far superior to anything that he had known before. So, let's look at the story. If you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. Acts 8, starting in verse 4. All right. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. 
With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. All right, so Simon thought he was pretty great. He boasted of his greatness. And the people in Samaria thought he was really great. They called him the great power. But then Philip shows up. Philip starts doing miraculous signs, preaching the gospel, and everybody's attention shifts from Simon to Philip. Now, if that was all that we knew about this story, and I was trying to anticipate where the story was going to go next, I would assume that Simon is going to be so overcome with jealousy by what's going on uh, that he's going to start treating Philip the way the Pharisees treated Jesus. Right? That wouldn't be an unreasonable assumption, right? That he would start trying to discredit Philip, to discredit his followers. He might even try to curse Philip in his ministry. It's the kind of behavior that we might expect, right? But that's not what happens. We're told that as Simon's former admirers start to become followers of Jesus, Simon actually becomes a follower of Jesus too. He believes and he's baptized. And rather than hating Philip, Simon becomes like Philip's fanboy, right? Just following him around all the time. Like, wow, you're so, that's incredible. Now, Simon is about to make a big mistake, and that's what we're going to focus on in this story. But before we get there, I really think we should be encouraged by this part of the story. Because this should remind us that we should never assume that we know whether somebody is going to be interested in the gospel or not. You know, I, I would not assume that this guy would be interested at all. Um, but, you know, even if somebody is part of a different religion, even if somebody is practicing witchcraft, even if somebody's power and authority and privilege are threatened by the gospel, we should not assume that that person is not going to be interested in Jesus. We should never make uh, that conclusion. So let's not be cynical, okay? Let's be hopeful. So Simon believes and is baptized, uh, but as is true of most of us when we first come to faith, he's immature. He's got a lot of things to learn, and he is about to make a big mistake, okay? So let's keep reading. Uh, this is verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you, 
because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the, the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. All right, so Simon sees uh, Peter and John placing their hands on people and giving people the Holy Spirit. And the text doesn't tell us exactly how it was so obvious that people were, were receiving the Holy Spirit. There's some possibilities. Maybe people suddenly started speaking in tongues, speaking in unknown languages. It's possible that people suddenly had um, some ability to uh, heal others or uh, to, to preach, or they, they suddenly had knowledge of things they never knew before. We don't know exactly, but when the Holy Spirit was being received by people, there was this very clear uh, demarcation between without the Holy Spirit and then with the Holy Spirit. And Simon looks at this happening, people receiving the Holy Spirit in this dramatic way, and he thinks, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to lay hands on people and have them receive the Holy Spirit. I want to be a conduit for that kind of power. And so Simon offers Peter money to give him this power. And then Simon gets told, doesn't he? May your money perish with you. You know, I have to confess that I actually feel a little bad for Simon here because Peter's rebuke is just so strong. He seems totally horrified, like he suddenly discovered that Simon is a cannibal or something like that, you know. Repent, he says, and, and perhaps God will forgive you. Wow. Now, just to be clear, okay, Scripture tells us that if we repent sincerely, uh, we are forgiven. Um, last week I mentioned 1 John 1.9, which promises, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So <clears throat> we, we shouldn't take Peter's words here as suggesting that real repentance might not lead to forgiveness. Okay, we should be assured, yes, if you sincerely repent, that leads to forgiveness. But what I think we should see in Peter's words here is an expression of how serious this sin is. You know, Peter, if you follow his personality throughout the Gospels, he's, he's, he's got a personality that's consistent, and it's one that's dramatic, right? It's dramatic, it's impulsive, and I, I think we see here Peter expressing just how serious this sin is through his dramatic personality, like, oh, oh, you know... But repent, and perhaps God will forgive you. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Now, what I, what I want to focus on this morning, what I want us to really realize, is that even though Peter's rebuke is super harsh and it's a little scary, it's actually a, a great thing. It is a wonderful thing that Peter rebukes Simon so strongly. So why is that? Well, if you're taking notes, I have two reasons to offer for why we should actually be happy about Peter's rebuke. So, first reason. Peter's rebuke is proof that the church is motivated by God, not by money. This is really important. <clears throat> you know, people 
who reject Christianity often do so uh, saying, well, it's all just a scheme. It's all just a scheme to make money. And it is certainly true that some people have used the name of Christ as a means to acquire wealth. And because of that, there are people who are very cynical uh, about Christianity. When I was preparing for the message about Ananias and Sapphira two weeks ago, I looked up YouTube videos about Ananias and Sapphira, and I found this one that told the story, and this was one of the comments that was under it. The murder of Ananias and Sapphira is a testament to the true nature of Christianity and its lusts for wealth. Now, I can completely understand why someone would read the story of Ananias and Sapphira and think that, because if you were here last week, hopefully you remember, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is about a couple that sells some land, and then they make an offering to the church of that land, but they hold back some of the money. And, and then when they make their offering, which is partial, not whole, they fall down dead. And this YouTube commenter is, is looking at this story, and he's saying, yep, that is a, just a microcosm of what the church is all about, right? Getting money. Give us all your money, or you'll die. Now, if you were here last week, I really hope you remember that I tried to explain that Ananias and Sapphira's real sin was not that they held back some of the money. Okay, their real sin was that they told everybody that they were giving all the money, and they wanted everyone to think that they were giving all the money, and they lied. Okay, so their real sin was hypocrisy. That's really what's being judged in that story. Important to recognize that. But even if this YouTube commenter wasn't sold on that argument that I just made right there, if I were to make it to him and he disagreed, I would say, please, YouTube commenter, read just a little bit further to Acts 8 to see what happens when Simon the sorcerer offers Peter money in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Right? What happens? Peter refuses. May your money perish with you. You know, if Peter's primary motivation was money... He, would have, he wouldn't have turned down Simon's offer. He would have done what the Scientologists do, right? He would have been like, oh, um, yes, this will give you level one Holy Spirit power. If you uh, commit to the next 10 years doing monthly payments, then eventually you'll be promoted to Holy Spirit power level nine, and then you'll have access to all the secrets of the universe. But no, it's not what Peter does, right? He rebukes Simon. And that is because the apostles' primary motivation is God, not money. <clears throat> now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean it's wrong to offer uh, money to the apostles. The apostles received money, right? The story of Ananias and Sapphira shows us that. Uh, people were making offerings to the apostles. They were receiving those offerings, and then they, they were using those offerings to bless the church, to support the church. But money was never the goal of the movement. Acquiring wealth was never the goal of the movement. The goal was always to spread the gospel. And if accepting money helped to spread the gospel, then yeah. But if accepting money could in some way endanger the gospel or compromise the gospel, then it was refused. So this moment shows us what Peter's priorities are. And we should be encouraged by that. 
right? The faith of the apostles, it's genuine. It's not corrupt. Um, you know, many, uh, many Christian leaders following them have been corrupt, very sadly, but the faith of the apostles was not corrupt. It was about loving God and loving neighbor and doing what's right, not about amassing wealth. And it's very hard to explain how the apostles could have that faith apart from the power of the risen Jesus living in them and motivating them to do what they were doing. All right, so that is the first reason we should be happy about Peter's rebuke. Second reason is because Peter's rebuke reminds us that God's economy is different from the world's. God's economy is different from the world's. In this world, the more money you have, the more power you have, right? The more privilege you have. But God's economy doesn't work the way the world works. The most significant blessings that God has to offer us, the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, forgiveness, love, these things are offered indiscriminately. Okay? The size of your bank account, your financial status has absolutely no bearing on whether or not you receive the Holy Spirit. No bearing on whether or not you have spiritual authority in the church. And I think that's great news. You know, one of the things that frustrates me about politics, one of the many things, <laughs> is that if you're going to have political authority and power, it's like you have to have tons of money, right? If you're going to start a campaign for office, you need lots and lots of money. And one might argue that money is a more significant factor in whether or not a person is going to receive a hearing for getting elected than character, than policies, than communication skills, right? Because if you don't have the money in the first place, you can't get your message out, and nobody's even going to know about you. So there's this connection between political power and money. But the kingdom of God is not supposed to be like that. In the kingdom of God, power and authority and blessing are not a privilege of those who have wealth, or at least they're not supposed to be. And I think we in the church have to be very careful not to slide into this way of thinking that power and money should be connected, authority and money should be connected. Now, you might be wondering, well, how might that happen? How might it happen that the church would start to connect uh, money and authority? Well, I can think of one way. Uh, sometimes church leaders are inclined to give positions of authority and power in their churches to the people who are the biggest donors um, because they want to satisfy those people. They, they want the people to keep giving. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting these people to keep giving. Um, churches need people to give. That's essential, right? But just because somebody is a, is a big donor doesn't mean that they should have more authority than somebody who doesn't make as much and doesn't have as much to put in the offering plate. But if a church leader isn't careful... They can start to allow money to buy authority in the church, even if it's subtle. Um, so church leaders have to be very, very careful. 
in God's economy, power, influence, blessing, authority is not supposed to be the privilege of the wealthy. So there's a warning here for church leaders, but there's also a corrective for people in the congregation. So those who give money to the church shouldn't automatically assume, well, I am entitled to have things go my way in this church. I'm entitled to have my theology be the accepted theology. I'm entitled to have my wants and preferences have precedent. I'm entitled, I'm entitled to be the one who leads the small groups or anything like that. Now, just to be clear, uh, I am not trying to downplay the significance of giving in the church. I want to be <laughs> very honest about that, okay? Uh, <laughs> Giving financially to the church, that's an important part of our worship. Jesus talked a lot about, about money. And what we do with our money reveals a lot about who we are. And God wants us to value the church. The primary goal of the church should never, ever be to get money. Okay? But we do need money to do the things that are our goals. right? Uh, our church can't meet for worship unless we have a place to meet. And if we're going to have a place to meet, we have to pay rent. And we can't meet the needs of people in our community who are in crisis if we don't have a crisis fund. And we can't do outreach in the community without some sort of financial resources. Uh, we can't support refugees or missionaries if we don't have money. We can't host vacation Bible camp or provide welcoming things for guests or have coffee downstairs or print bulletins or, or anything like that. And of course, people like Keith and I can't devote most of our work hours to ministry if we can't pay our bills. Um, so, so giving does matter. Money matters. But this is what we have to remember even as we keep that in mind, is that the size of our bank account should have no bearing whatsoever on whether or not we have spiritual authority in the church. And the instant that we start thinking that it should, well, we're thinking like Simon, right? Because Simon thought that he could buy spiritual authority. He thought by giving money in exchange for that money, he could have that spiritual power. And if we start to think that way, we need to hear Peter's words in our head. May your money perish with you. So there's a warning here. Okay, there's a warning for church leaders, for people like me. There's a warning for us, all of us. Um, but this story is not just a warning. It's, it is great news. It is great news that God's love and his blessing and the Holy Spirit is for all. Rich and poor, for those who only have a little bit to offer financially and those who have a lot to offer financially. And we in the church are called to be part of a revolutionary community, a countercultural community that just does not work the way the rest of the world works. You know, a community with a different set of values, a different economy. And I pray that we can embody that different economy. Because when those in the world see a community that isn't a slave to money, the way most of the world is, it, it's a powerful witness to the reality that Jesus has written. It's a, 
is risen. It's a powerful witness to the, to the reality of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for this story, this, uh, this powerful correction that comes through Peter, uh, that money cannot buy you, um, that your gifts are gifts of grace. Um, and Lord, I pray that our community be, would be one that honors this, this fact, um, that your blessings are, are indiscriminate. They are not determined by the size of our bank account. Uh, Lord, I pray that when we give, our giving would be motivated by a desire to, um, to bless the church and, and to um, move, our, move the mission forward of spreading the gospel, uh, not by a desire to gain personal power. Um, Lord, I pray that we would be that countercultural community when it comes to how we, how we view money. And uh, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your indiscriminate love. In Jesus' name, amen.